I Have a Dream, copyright 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. Speech by Reverend Martin Luther King at the, Wash at the March on Washington. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous degree is a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who have been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to the end of the long night of their captivity. But a hundred years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years after the life of the Negro is still badly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. So we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, will be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this great nation. So we come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hollow spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in a luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark, desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality of all God's children. It will be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment, the sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest or tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright days of justice emerge. At that, and that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the worn threshold 
which leads into the Palace of Justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead to distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone, and as we walk, we must take we must make the pledge that there always march that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is a victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their adulthood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulation. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, through though even though we have faced the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise above, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a, splos a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, Will, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, by the, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, with its vicious races, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day, right here in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day, every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. 
and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is our faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing a new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land where the pilgrims pride, of every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from the Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of that old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. You're listening to the Black Male Therapist Podcast with your host, Art Harris. Welcome to another edition of the Black Male Therapist Podcast. I'm your host, Art Harris, licensed marriage and family therapist and school psychologist, breaking it down from the perspective of a black male. This episode is special. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Tribute Edition. We want to give honor to a man who won the Nobel Peace Prize, to a man who stood up for racial injustice, to a man who died and standing up for economic injustice, to a man who was proud to stand up for what he believed in in terms of helping the people, black people, and having a vision to help the whole world heal move forward. So this edition of the show will take time to honor this man. A few notes on Martin Luther King Jr. taken from Wikipedia. He was born January 15, 1929 and was assassinated on April 4, 1968. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia and was best known for his advancing civil rights through non-violence and civil disobedience. And he was inspired by his Christian beliefs and the nonviolent activism of Mahatma Gandhi. He led the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott and in 1957 became the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He helped, well, he fought in Albany, Georgia against the struggle of segregation. He helped to organize nonviolent protests in Birmingham, Alabama. Kemp organized the 1963 March on Washington, where he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, which I read at the beginning of the show. And on October 14, 1964, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for combating racial inequality through nonviolent resistance. In 1965, he helped to organize the Selma Montgomery marches, and he was an advocate for the rights of the people. Later in his career, he began in 1967 talking about 
the problems we fight in Vietnam, when there's so many problems happening right here in America, he became a target of J. Edgar Hoover's co-intel pro-operation from 1963 on. They even tried to get Dr. King to kill himself by sending him a threat in their letters. He planned um, an occupation on Washington, D.C. to be called the Poor People's Campaign when he was assassinated on April 4, 1968 by James Earl Ray. And um, some people debate on how he really died, whether it was from the bullet or from him getting insufficient care at St. Joseph's Hospital. I'll tell you, regardless of who killed him, I'm going to tell you what killed him. And that was the sickness of racism and bigotry of America. But good job, Martin Luther King Jr. Great job. Thank you for standing to watch, for putting in the work. I know Many people of that time and of this time felt that the nonviolent way was not the way to get our rights and our um, freedom here in America. Many people felt picking up the gun, picking up the sword, picking up the brick, picking up the axe, picking up arms, picking up that fist, kicking that leg, lighting fires, whatever we can do. It's time to fight and all back at these people trying to hold us down. And, um, Many people were right to want to take that stand, but I think Dr. King at some point had those feelings also. From my studies, he had to be persuaded to, hey, nonviolence is the way to push, not only for the survival of the people, but for this whole thing to change America over time. And um, regardless of your political beliefs or philosophical stances on nonviolence or not, I'll say it takes a brave, strong man to push this agenda, to take this approach in a time where people were getting hung, lynched, burned, jailed, just starved, all types of atrocities were happening to black people in America. And to take this nonviolent approach, I think he saw a vision where we could pick up arms, but these attacks and these battles are going to be played out in a black community. I think he saw if we took up arms, it was going to be young people, black people, being picked off and killed, and maybe the annihilation of our race. And so I credit Dr. King for having a vision that, in some ways, made things better, at least socially. And I think when we read his speech, The Other America, talking about two other Americas, we're going to see how his mode was switching towards this economic injustice and this economic inequality, which some believe led to his assassination. So, thank you, Dr. King. We'll definitely get some updates about what's happening in the world. We'll talk about sports. We have two teams who punched the tickets to the Super Bowl. We'll give a little bit of sports update, but this whole show is all about MLK. We'll take a break and come back and get down to business. You're listening to the Black Male Therapist Podcast. This portion of the show is sponsored by Robin Hood. You can go to infight.robinhood.com backslash Arthur 447 for a chance to get a free stock up to $500 just for signing up. You should do it. Get invested. Get in the game. Don't get left behind because you're afraid to invest. Start today. Welcome back to the show. So, Life Magazine recently re-released their edition of 100 People Who Changed the World. And our Martin Luther King Jr. made this not only this list, but he was also on the cover. And so I want to read to you a little bit from his article in Life Magazine. It says, it was 1954 and the US Supreme Court had ordered the desegregation of schools, but with racism and inequality still rampant 
in many sectors of society, a young preacher from Atlanta, the latest in the family line of ministers, decided to join, in fact, help launch the movement. By 1955, Martin Luther King Jr. had assumed leadership of the historic Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott, which triggered similar actions throughout the South. And in 1957, he founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which advocated for a nonviolent struggle of justice. King was one of the greatest orators in American history and could stir the masses with his biblical cadences. In March after March, he led them in Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, Washington, D.C., where he declared his dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. Because of his tactics and persona, he was not seen as radical like others who were fighting for equality this era. He was listened to by many who turned a deaf ear to the Black Panthers, certainly, and to Malcolm X. When King's followers kept their dignity and poise as they were being assaulted by dogs and his fire hoses, and Americans saw this on the nightly news, public opinion turned. King, along with President Lyndon Baines Johnson, is the man most responsible for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and which helped write the course. Prejudice and inequality remain in abundance, but the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. effected tangible change before he was assassinated in Memphis in 1968. His work not yet done, but well and truly started. Welcome back to the show. So, um, I want to take a time to cover this article that I saw on the BBC News. It's titled, Doris Miller, U.S. Navy Aircraft Carrier to Honor Black Sailor. So, I don't need to read this entire article, but... I want to highlight a few points. In case you don't know, in 1942, the world was at war. It was World War II. But in the beginning of the war, the United States was not involved. It wasn't until December 7th, a Sunday morning, when the Pearl Harbor base in Hawaii was attacked by the Japanese in a surprise attack. Dory Miller, who was born in 1919 in Texas, the third of four sons, he was named Doris, and his mother had thought she was having a girl, but when they talked to him, they often referred to him as Dory. Dory, along with the other black soldiers on that ship, were in the mess hall. Their roles were to attend to the white officers right? Not allowed to really do too much of anything on the ship. He was in the mess hall and heard that, um, was it a torpedo or a missile that hit that ship? And he rushed to the top, um, took care in helping some of his sailors who were injured in the surprise attack. And he got on one of those big guns that we have on those naval ships and he started shooting dumping and he took out at least one of those planes and he really helped defend and fight off the japanese the ship sank and they all had to jump ship but it would have been worse if it wasn't for dory miller coming out of the mess hall to shoot down those japanese fighter jets in order to save a lot of lives that day and that launched the u.s into the world war ii and i think for a lot of people, it reminded the world and America particularly that black people can fight, 
Black people are valuable in this military. Black people live here too. And it's nothing wrong with letting them pick up the gun and get to war to fight. I think the problem over time is that they love putting us on the on the front lines and letting us get killed and all these dumb ideas and dumb missions. But the, the main focus of this story is to name that. Dory Miller, who held us on and supported his shipmates, did a great deed. And in doing so, he saved lives. And for his work, he has a ship, an aircraft carrier, that is going to be named after him. To add to this story, um, Dory Miller um, received a Medal of Honor during that time for his campaign. In case you didn't know, um, many people didn't want him to get that Medal of Honor because he was black. But they said, no, forget that. Let's give this man his Medal of Honor. And he's going to get this new honor. In 2028, there'll be a new aircraft carrier launched with his name on it. And so we want to take that moment to honor people black people who have done something to contribute to this world and our history. And we want to also take some time to look at sports. Yo, the big focus of this weekend has been the NFL playoffs. And in case you don't know, two tickets to the Super Bowl have been punched. The San Francisco 49ers beat the Green Bay Packers today in a dominating fashion and they will take their strong run game and tough nose defense on the road to Miami M-I-M-I-M-I-A to face the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl in case you don't know Kansas City has the flyboy quarterback yeah the flyboy quarterback that's my daughter in the background. They have the Flyboy quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, who is possibly the best football player in the league right now, who is going to his first Super Bowl because they beat the Tennessee Titans. And in case you missed it, Tennessee Titans had the best running back in the league in Henry on their team, and they shut him down. He didn't really get nothing going. And so they knocked them off with their good defense and great offense. And so Kansas City is on high going to Miami. They're going to face the 49ers. Look, I'm a Raiders fan, Oakland Raiders. That means I'm not too fond of the 49ers and I'm not too fond of the Kansas City Chiefs. So where do I go with pulling for a team in this? I'll let logic lead me to believe that Kansas City is going to kick their butts. I almost said it, but I won't because my daughter is right here. But I think Kansas City is going to get down and they're going to dominate the 49ers. Why? Because their offense and their defense is better than the 49ers. Great, the 49ers beat Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers. Guess what? Aaron Rodgers is washed up. It's time to hit the road, Jack. So the 49ers, ooh, they beat the Minnesota Vikings. The Minnesota Vikings, they were so lucky to be there. They are so lucky to be there. And so I want to say good job to the 49ers to making it to the Super Bowl. Now let's see what you do against a real, a real contender in the Kansas City Chiefs. It's Patrick Mahomes' time to shine. No, I'm not a Kansas City fan. I just don't like the 49ers. And so I'm going to take pleasure in watching Kansas City get to work and put an end to this mockery, get put an end to this bandwagon stuff and just knock off the 49ers and let's get back to business in terms of letting the cream of the crop rule the NFL. The Niners, good job. You guys made it to the Super Bowl. Now let's see what you do against Kansas City.
You're listening to the Black Male Therapist Podcast. This section of the show is brought to you by the Acorns app. The best way to save your leftover money, your leftover loose change, whatever you need to do, it's the best way to get ahead and get started in the game. Just link your debit card and get started and watch as you get closer to your financial dreams. Start investing with Acorns today. Get $5 when you use my invite link for 8P9Z2. Just go to acorns.com backslash invite backslash 48P9Z2 to get your $5 to see where it takes you. You have nothing to lose but time. Welcome back to the show. So, in this Martin Luther King Jr. Tribute Edition, I want to take some time to talk about another important speech from Martin Luther King Jr. We started the show with the I Have a Dream speech, but I want to end the show with text from The Other America, which was a speech that was delivered by Martin Luther King to address race, poverty, and economic justice. There were various versions of the speech that was given from 1967 to 68, but this is the speech that was given um, at the Stanford University Aurora Forum. And so I want to start by reading some of this speech, but it's a long speech, so I doubt I'll get through it all today. And we'll come back next week to get into it, but I want to read some of the speech And so we can look at some of the similarities of what was happening then and what is happening now so we can really wrap our our minds on what do we need to do as a country in order to really continue to move forward. Don't let this man's assassination be for nothing. Let's keep the push moving. And so let's start with the other America. Members of the faculty and members of the student body of this great institution of learning, ladies and gentlemen. Now, there are several things that one could talk about before such a large concern and enlightened audience. There are so many problems facing our nation and our world that one could just take off anywhere. But today, I would like to talk mainly about the race problems since I have to rush right out and go to New York to talk about Vietnam tomorrow. And I've been talking about it in a great detail this week and weeks before that. But I'd like to use the subject from which to speak this afternoon, the other America. And I use this subject because there are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful for situation and in a sense, This America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies and culture and education for their minds and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. In this America, millions of people experience day to day the opportunity of having life liberty and the pursuit of happiness in all their dimensions and in this america millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity but tragically and unfortunately there is another america this america has daily ugliness that is about it that constantly transforms the ebulliency of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search of jobs for that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. In a sense, 
The greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to little children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with the clouds of inferiority forming every day in their little mental skies. As we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of blasted hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. Some are Mexican Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are Indians, some happen to be from other groups. Millions of them are uh, Appalachian whites, but probably the largest group in this other America in proportion to its size is the population of the American Negro. The American Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, a ghetto of human misery. So what we are seeking to do in the civil rights movement is to deal with this problem, to deal with this problem of the two Americas. We are seeking to make America one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now let me say that the struggle for civil rights and the struggle to make these two Americas one America is much more difficult today than it was five or 10 years ago. For about a decade, or maybe 12 years, we've struggled all across the South in glorious struggles to get rid of legal, overt segregation, and all of the humiliation that surrounded that system of segregation. In a sense, this was a struggle for decency. We cannot go to lunch, we cannot go to a lunch counter in so many instances and get a hamburger or a cup of coffee. We cannot make use of public accommodations. Public transportation was segregated. We often had to sit in the back with trans within transportation, transportation within cities. We often had to stand over empty seats because sections were reserved for whites only. We did not have the right to vote in many areas of the South and the struggle was to deal with these problems. And certainly, they were difficult problems. They were humiliating conditions. By the thousands we protested these conditions, we made it clear that it was ultimately more honorable to accept jail experiences than to accept segregation and humiliation. By the thousands, students and adults decided to sit in at segregated lunch counters to protest contention to protest conditions here. When they were sitting at those lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and seeking to take the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Many things were gained as a result of these years of struggle. In 1964, the Civil Bill of Rights came to being after Birmingham movement, which had a great deal to the subpoena of the conscience of a large segment of the nation to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. After the Selma, Selma movement in 1965, we were able to get a voting bill's right and all of these things represented strides. But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's much more difficult because we are struggling now for genu genuine equality. It is much more easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good solid job. It is much more easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality integrated education a reality. And so today, we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality. It is not merely a struggle against extremist behaviors towards Negroes, and I'm convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way now. I came to see this in a very difficult and painful way. In Chicago, the last year where I've lived and worked 
some of the people who came quickly to march with this assailment at Birmingham were active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing to Selma and Birmingham were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bill Connor and Jim Clark towards Negroes rather than believing in genuinely, genuinely equality for Negroes. And I think that this is what we've got to see now. And this is what makes the struggle much more difficult. So as a result of all of this, we see many problems existing today that are growing more difficult. It's something that is often overlooked, but Negroes generally live in worse slums today than 20 or 25 years ago. In the schools of the North, they are more segregated today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court decision on desegregation was rendered. Economically, the Negro is worse off today than he was 15 and 20 years ago. And so the unemployment rate among whites at one time was about the same as the unemployment rate, unemployment rate as Negroes. But today, the unemployment rate among Negroes is twice of that of whites. And the average income of the Negro today is only 50% of whites. As we look to these problems, we see them growing and developing every day. We see that fact that the Negro economically is facing a depression in this everyday life that is more staggering than the depression of the 30s. The unemployment rate of the nation as a whole is about 4%. Statistically, we'll say from the Labor Department that among the Negro is about 8.4%. But these are the persons who are in the labor market who still go to employment agencies to seek jobs. And so they can be calculated. The statistics can be gotten because they are still somehow in the labor market. But there are hundreds of thousands of Negroes who have given up. They've lost hope. They come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor for them with no exit sign. And so they no longer go to look for a job. There are those who could, who would estimate that these persons who are called the discouraged persons, these six or seven percent in the Negro community, that means that unemployment among Negroes may well be 16 percent. Among Negro youth in some of our larger urban areas, it goes to 30, 40 percent. So you can see what I mean when I say that in the Negro community, there is a major tragic and staggering depression that we face in our everyday lives. Now, the other thing that we've got to come to see now that many of us didn't see too well during the last 10 years, that is that racism is still alive in American society and much more widespread than realized. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of the superior and the inferior race. It is the false and tragic notion that one particular group, one particular race is responsible for all the progress, all of the insights in the total flow of history. And the theory that another group or another race is totally depraved, inactly impure, and inaptly inferior. In the final analysis, racism is evil because it is ultimate logic of genocide. Hitler was a sick and tragic man who carried racism to its logical conclusion. He ended up leading a nation to the point of killing about six million Jews. This is a tragedy of racism because its ultimate logic is genocide. If one says, I am not good enough, to live next door to him, if one says that I'm not good enough to eat at a lunch counter or, ha or to have a good, decent job or to go to a school with him merely because of my race, he is saying consciously or unconsciously that I do not deserve to exist. To use a philosophical analogy here, racism is not based on some empirical generalization. It is based rather on a affirmation. It is not the assertion that 
certainly people are behind culturally or otherwise because of environmental conditions. It is the affirmation that the very being of, of people is inferior, and this is the great tragedy of it. I submit that, however, unpleasant it is, we must honestly see and admit that racism is deeply rooted all over America, and it's still deeply rooted in the North, and it's still deeply rooted in the South. And this leads me to saying something about another discussion that we hear a great deal, and that is the so-called white blacklash, backlash. I would like to say honestly, I would like to honestly say to you that the white backlash is merely a new name for an old phenomenon. It is not something just came into being because of shots of black power or because Negroes engaged in riots and watts. For instance, for instance, the fact is that the state of California voted a fair housing bill out of existence for before anybody shouted black power, before anybody rioted in watts. It may well be that shouts of black power and riots in Watts and in the Harlems and in other areas are the consequence of the white backlash rather than the cause of them. What is necessary is to see that there has never been a single solid monistic determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans or the whole question of civil rights on the whole question of racial equality. This is something the truth impels all men of goodwill to admit. So I want to take a break from this speech right now because it's a long speech and I don't want to read so much that it all get glazed over. Um, I see my daughter fell asleep and I think this is a good time to really start to ponder about what we've heard in this speech so far. What came up for me this weekend, me and the family, we drove um, down and around Oakland because the Saturday is the um, meeting for our chapter of the Bay Area Black Psychologists. So the third Saturday of every month at the West Oakland Youth Center in Oakland, the Bay Area chapter of psychologists meet to discuss um issues related to black people and mental health and to find a way to try to create an impact or try to create some solutions or to try to make progress in our communities. And we're doing some good work. I encourage you out there to come check it out if you are interested in supporting the cause of black people and mental health. But during this ride, um, as we pass through Berkeley and West Oakland, and I've been some corners in East Oakland and a little bit of North Oakland. You see um, the poor communities where black people traditionally live are worse than ever before. I want to say that it's even worse than when I grew up in it in the 1980s and 90s. And, um, and the reason being is because so many people are living on the road. So many people are living in tents and so many people are living on the side of freeways. So many people are living under the freeway. So many people are living under underpasses and it's a mess. And it's a real sickening condition when you look and see all the black men and women and children that are living in poverty who are homeless. It's a shame to see all the white people living there too. This is a country where citizens who've lived here for a long time, some served in the military, just like Dory Miller, are living in tents on the side of the freeway. And if it's not happening in your town, um, just keep driving. I'm pretty sure it's happening in a town near you because this is something that's happening along um, the highways of all of America. And I think... When we read this speech, The Other America by Martin Luther King, we're starting to see some similarities from then to the similarities of today. When we start talking about the segregation in our schools, I work in the schools, and I know the communities are very segregated by race. 
and the services to these schools are very different also. But I also want to say the services sometimes are separated by socioeconomic status. That's not saying that the school district is trying to keep money out of here or money out of there, but I'm just saying that there are groups on different sides of town for different groups of people who are not getting their fair share of services, who are not getting the equal opportunity for housing, and who are not getting their fair share of opportunities for employment. And so we really need to continue to be aware of these things. And we have to continue to educate ourselves and continue to move forward to make sure that we are really going in the right direction and that we really are trying to improve, not just for our communities, but for yours also. The worst thing I see is that so many people are separated and caught up in the rat race that people are forgetting to stand together. People are forgetting to unite and people are united to look or forgetting to look after one another. And so as we read this speech, I encourage you to start thinking, does this other America still apply to me and mine, to my community? And if it doesn't, you need to realize that it's applying to some other community. And we have to do something about it. If we really want to make a change and let this man's legacy live on, we can't let it be wasted by us. And so that's the end of the show today. I really appreciate it coming to you guys today on this MLK tribute. We're going to have to carry over to next week, but that's okay. As we lead into Black History Month, it's nothing wrong with taking some time to really talk about Martin Luther King's speech to other America and let it lead into other events as we get ready for Black History Month. Um, you know, on the Black Male Therapist Show, it's Black History Day every day, baby. And so thank you for tuning in. Again, you can follow me on Instagram at Black Male Therapist. Email me, DM me, check me out, let me know what you think, support the show in other in other ways, however you can. I would love to get your feedback. And so we'll continue to go on and try to make this place better. But until next week, you should know yourself because self-knowledge is the key. You're listening to the Black Male Therapist Podcast.